0: what's up guys this episode is brought to you by mentor cam mentor cam is the only place where you can get one-on-one advice from extraordinary experts in their field it's probably the coolest app out there right now it's the only place where you can get one-on-one intimate advice from your favorite athletes celebrities musicians and as well as motivational speakers so make sure you go to mentor cam download the app and use WS25 to get 25% off. Again, use code WS25 to get 25% off. Everyone, check it out. Let's get it. Awesome. All right, everybody. Hope Solo. I don't even think this needs an introduction. Um, Hope is a former goalkeeper for the United States women's national team. And uh, from 2000 to 2016, she's a world cup champion, two-time Olympic gold medalist and two-time golden glove winner and considered one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time. Uh, just extremely grateful to have her on today. Hope, thanks so much. That's quite
1: the intro. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, when, when was it that you first realized you grew a competitive nature for sports in general and, and maybe later on specifically uh, soccer?
1: Uh, man, I think I was born with that competitive nature, honestly. Um, let's see, two older brothers, father who was really into sports. He coached uh, community uh, college basketball. He coached all the kids in, in baseball growing up. So real huge sports, uh, father and brother. Um, and I, and my brother was three and a half years older and I hung out with all the boys and all his friends. I was kind of, you know, my mom worked the swing shift. So after school, my brother had to take care of me for the most part until she got home. And I was just roughing it with the boys and I was playing sports with them and they weren't going to leave me out as much as my brother probably didn't like it. But it toughened me up a little bit. My brother was not easy on me by any means. We, uh, you know, we fought like cats and dogs and wrestled quite a bit, but, um, I would I would keep up with them, three and a half years older, and I would, I would egg them on to race. And I, I was just, um, you know, a kid that grew up in the country in eastern Washington, state of Washington, grew up on the river, um, running, you know, kneeboarding, skiing, just doing all fun things that kids do. But I was so much of a convoy that I think it helped kind of my ability to learn my body in different ways and, and really hone in on those athletic skills.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. That's, that's awesome. I mean, do you remember, uh, you know, the first time you, you, you played soccer, um, did you play soccer with a family a lot or, and then, <laughs> and then that's when I really stepped up to another
1: competitive level or. Yeah, my family, I mean, they were huge into <laughs> football and basketball. Um, yeah. So nobody really knew soccer, but my father certainly coached my first team called the Pink Panthers. So the first time I played, it was for the Pink Panthers. And my father was a coach. And I'll never forget, um, I mean, I was a a field player. um, And he put me in the goal. We all had to rotate and go in the goal. And I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I, I think I started at four or five years old. And the ball went like over my head, looped over me for the first goal ever scored on me as a goalkeeper. And I just wanted to be out on the field scoring goals. And I scored so many goals that my dad had to bench me all the time. So we didn't, you know, up the score on the other teams. But I I was a bad goalkeeper as a little girl. Great. Great. Yeah. I (laughs) just didn't understand the positioning.
0: Yeah, I mean, how how were you able? So you know, after that maybe tough first time in goal, uh, like how did you know that was the position for you? Um, oh, I
1: didn't, yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry, Kevin. I didn't yeah. know. Um, I hated goalkeeping. Hated it. I was quite the athlete. I was quite the runner. I wanted to kick the ball around the field and score goals. I was so competitive. I wanted to score goals, and I had the state record for um, four goals in high school. So. We beat up on, you know, the bigger kids on the Western side of the state in Seattle and the kind of bigger uni- or not universities, but bigger high schools. And I had the state record for scoring goals. And I could have gone to a number of different universities as a field player. I made the regional and the state ODP team as a field player. And I didn't become a full-time goalkeeper until college, until I was 18 years old. And I was athletic. I was quick. I was fast. And so I really kind of changed um, goalkeeping uh, during that era. Um, being able to play with the ball at my feet, being able to be quick, um, and also being a goal scorer kind of helped me understand the attack and forwards coming at me. But I hated it. I was miserable because I didn't know the intricacies of goalkeeping. It took my college coach, Amy Griffin, um she was my goalkeeper coach in college. It took her really teaching me those little small intricacies of goalkeeping until I gained respect for the position. And it wasn't until way later in my career did I, did I fall in love with goalkeeping because it is so challenging? You will never be perfect at it. You will get scored on. The best goalkeepers in the world will let in even bad goals, and 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 it's really humbling. And it's a tough position. And I wouldn't, I would never allow my kids to play it. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> wish it for my worst enemy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, obviously you've had success with it, so I mean, you know, salute to you. But um, yeah, like what were what were some of those challenges, like specifically? you know, playing goal at at a young age, right? I mean, trying to stay disciplined and work on your craft, like, what are some of the sacrifices that you feel like separated yourself uh, from the rest of the pack?
1: Uh, Well, like I said, I didn't become a full-time goalkeeper until I was 18, so in college, Um, and that's when I learned the sacrifices of what it took to be a goalkeeper, but I was just a kid who, you know, early on growing up, I was just a kid who wanted to win, who wanted to score goals and who would do whatever it took to win? Um, and I thought it gave me a sense of confidence as a young girl. You see, this day and age where you know you're a poor sport if you get upset when you lose, and I think it builds character to want to be the best. And we've re- we've kind of moved so far away from that. Kids, uh, I have a lot of, a lot of um, coaching friends in college and ODP for different states. Um, club directors. And that's one of the number one things they say is that kids are afraid to stand out anymore. They don't want to be way better than the rest of their teammates because it kind of puts them, kind of makes them the black sheep almost. Everybody wants to fit in. And there is an aspect in sports growing up and youth sports um, where, you know, you make friends and you want to fit in with everybody. But I still think we need to really encourage kids to feel good about themselves and to be their best that they can be and that it's okay to stand out. And for me, it gave me a lot of confidence as a kid where I was better than most of my fellow teammates. And it gave me the confidence to go after my dreams in college, to get a full scholarship, to go to college because my family couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. So I really was able to believe in myself and believe that I could go to a division one college, that I could play for the United States one day and I was really able to dream because I believed in my skill set, And I've seen kids these days just with a lack of confidence and, and it's tough. I think it's just a generational change of how we treat kids and how we coach kids.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. What was, uh, was, it, was there a time like you, that you look back on where you, you almost felt like you were gonna quit because it was so challenging because of all the sacrifices you had to make or, um, and yeah, I mean, is there anything that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, soccer has become in the United States a, a very much a, a rich kid sport. It costs thousands of dollars a year to play. And growing up, it was really no different for me. My I'll never forget when my mom and my stepfather sat me down in our living room in front of the fireplace. They had to have a serious conversation with me and they basically said, "Hope You know, we can't afford for you to do this anymore. I'm playing traveling soccer. I'm going to tournaments, um, you know, in Colorado, and California. I'm going to all the major tournaments, but I had to do car washes. I had to go door to door and beg for money. (laughs) My grandparents helped support me. It wasn't easy. And it still was was taxing on my mom and my my stepfather. And they sat me down and they they asked me to stop playing at the, the real competitive level, the travel club teams, because we couldn't afford it and we couldn't afford all the cleats. We had to have matching bags and matching uniforms and the prices just kept increasing every year. So they sat me down and I'll never forget where I just, it was a moment, a turning point where I knew that these were my dreams and nothing was gonna stop me. And I got angry at my stepfather and my mom and I said, I will get a scholarship, you wait and see, nothing's gonna stop me, I'm not gonna stop playing. And I put my foot down and looking back, and I remember my stepfather and my mom actually felt really guilty for asking me to stop playing because they essentially asked me to stop following my dreams, but less than 1% of kids actually go to division one school or make it to the pros or play for the USA team. So they're thinking logically and they wanted what was best for our family, but they actually asked their young girl to stop following her dreams. And it, it hurt them when they realized that. And when I put my foot down, it was full steam ahead i had my blinders on and i was going to get that, that division one college scholarship and i was going to continue to shoot to play for the united states team
0: yeah no definitely i mean so when when you get the scholarship at the university of washington and uh you go on to the junior national team in 2000 you know was that when your family was like wow like <laughs> You know, she actually did it. Was that like that? Must have been a surreal moment for you, where you. Yeah,
1: man. So I actually, you know, I think when they give you the dates on Wikipedia or in the stat books or whatever, they give you the dates of the first game that you represented the USA team for. So that was, I believe, it was 2000. Is that what you have or 2001? I think it was 2000. Yeah,
0: yeah, like 2000. Oh, no. um, like it said uh, when you entered the uh, you know junior national team.
1: So my first uh, camp with the full team was actually in 1997. So I was a young, young kid. And what had happened is I think the full team went on strike. And so they brought in a bunch of young kids to represent the full team for camp. So I actually was in camp from 1997, 98, 99. I was in residency in 1999 after the women's team won the world cup. And then uh, I got cut from the 2000 Olympic team, but I was in residency for the 2000 Olympics. So that's actually, me being cut from 1997 (laughs) to 2000 and that's tough you know that's real tough I got told time and time again that I have a lot of potential and I started to hate that word potential because I wanted it then right then you know I didn't have the patience that it took Um, I, I was a quality athlete and I had a lot of grit to me but I was a little rough around the edges and my decision making obviously I needed a little bit more experience on but, uh, but yeah, so that, that's a long time to wait to play your first game for the national team when you're kind of there, but kind of on the outskirts. Really Absolutely.
0: tough. Absolutely. So were you still having, um, you know, some naysayers around you when, you know, you knew it was there, but you knew you had to stay patient. Like, did you have, what made you kept going? Like, even you knew it's right there. You, you've already accomplished so much already and you're so close. Um, you know, was, was there ever a time where... Were like come on like hope like still like you know focus on it. like what what kept you going even when you were so close
1: i knew i was one of the best goalkeepers in training um yeah. but as a goalkeeper you don't get a lot of opportunities to play games there's you know you play one goalkeeper for the most part every game maybe coaches will split which i don't even believe that a goalkeeper should split halves because Maybe they don't get a lot of opportunity in 45 minutes. You kind of need to see a whole game and decision makings and what goalkeepers do. So, so that's why goalkeepers usually come into the program a little bit later. They're old. You know, you take a field player, you sub them on for 10 minutes and you get them some some game experience or so they can play 20 minutes here and there and they, they start to gain that experience and that confidence. But goalkeepers don't get that. But in training, I knew that I was one of the strongest goalkeepers. So, I mean, that that was apparent. I had, um, as much as every coach said, man, she has a lot of potential. She's going to be the future. It, it was supportive. You know, it gave me that hope. It dangled it right in front of me, just enough to, to, to keep working hard.
0: Definitely, definitely. And during this time, was, you know, I can imagine it was probably a crazy transition for you. Was there ever a time where
1: you were a little
0: intimidated or overwhelmed at a young age because I, I saw, I uh, actually heard some interviews uh, in the past where, you know, during your time with it within uh, 2000 or 2004, I believe it was the 2004 Olympics run in Athens. You talked about uh, like Mia Hamm kind of gave you uh, like some some advice on like a dropkick. Do those kind of encounters, like were those intimidating for you at, at a young age or?
1: Mia Hamm was awesome. She was awesome. She She's the type of teammate and player um, that i'd want to play with because she's a hard ass and she makes you better and uh you know I, the, the current national team it's tough like each generation changes how they do things right and so it became really tough to hold players accountable especially towards the end of my career Um, You know, a lot of athletes these days are a little bit more catered to, depending what head coach you have. They want to stroke egos as opposed to holding them accountable. So things change and things shift. But Mia Hamm, she was the real deal. Um, Looking back, though, when I was young, coming onto the national team, 17, 18, when I was young, I had no fear. I didn't even know how big of rock stars you know these players were i was oblivious to it i wasn't really a huge soccer fan you know i watched basketball and football with with my father and my brothers so i wasn't really like i wasn't over the top meeting these players and then when i'm on the team for 3 4 years i'm a little bit older i start to realize what what's at stake and you see this happen with a lot of athletes where they're young they're not you know they're not realizing what's at stake or how much money they can make or how many medals they can make or how popular they could be and all this stuff that comes with being famous, right? Nobody, you're just kind of ignorant to it. And then you fast forward a couple of years and you're like, ooh, okay, I really want this. I really, really want this. And your play starts to decline a little bit. And that's what happened to me, um, probably early 20s you know, I was in, it was a strong, young athletic kid. And then I'm like, oh, I really want this. And I put the pressure, even more pressure on me before it was just grit, athleticism, a desire, a passion. And then you, uh, you just really want to make it. And there's the pressure of making rosters and you see it a lot. You see it a lot where where players start to decline a little bit, but then they usually work them way back up. And that's, that's what happened to me. And when I realized, um, you know, I'm playing with all the, the huge names in the game, me, Ham, like you said, um, she wasn't the one who made me nervous. She held me accountable, and I loved that. But you had other players, um, you know, who would buck the blame sometimes, like just because everyone wanted to make the team. And as a goalkeeper, a lot of that blame goes on you if, they're, if you get scored on, right? And so I never knew how to stand up to defenders being like, no, you needed to shift left and stand to the ball and keep them outside and not let the service get in and you need a mark in the box. Um, I became more of a better organizer and I understood how to motivate my defenders later. And somebody once told me that goalkeeping is 99% kissing your defenders butts and 1% kicking their butts. And you have to find that fine line of really motivating the people in front of you. And I didn't know how to do that early on. I just took the blame all the time. And it really it really hit my confidence when I always had to take the blame for every goal, which I always do anyways, because I always think as goalkeepers that there's there is a way that we can make the save no matter what. There is a way. So I always took the blame, but I never was able to say, well, actually, if our defense pushed up higher and we dropped to the left, I was never able to organize as well as I, I could later on in my career.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, obviously it panned out pretty well for you. (laughs) You know, you were able to definitely take that leadership role. Um, Did you ever feel like, you know, at one point, because you you were taking on so much accountability um, within your position, did you ever feel like yourself or or the position you played was underappreciated uh, within, like, the U.S. team?
1: I think goalkeeping in general is an underappreciated position in soccer um, around the world, men and women's game. Um, But I think... I, I don't think people can really understand the pressure, the mental exhaustion at the end of a game. It doesn't matter if you didn't touch the ball once. If you're a great um, organizer, then, then your job is to prevent shots and to prevent the attack. And you have the audience and the fans wanting to see the game-winning saves, you know, the, the highlight reels. But what makes a goalkeeper great is their efficiency and their simplicity because they're organizing in front of them. So I wouldn't say within my team, anything was underappreciated. My, my defenders needed me and they needed my voice. Um, but, you know, in the, in the, within the fan world, they still want to see that highlight reel. And it is fun to see a goalkeeper make a big save, but I don't think they have the eye necessarily for those intricacies that I learned back in college.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, it definitely, definitely was a grind and, and a long road. Um, I, I was going to ask because I know the 2015 World Cup, you know that was obviously a huge accomplishment for you, and you know that five-two win uh, against Japan. And um, you know when when the team scored four goals in fifteen minutes, how do you stay mentally focused as a goalie uh, when you're up that early on in the game? You know how, how do you stay stay? I guess
1: on your toes. I mean, Japan still scored two goals, right? And I, was, I was I was so mad about the goals, but I I had to erase that because we won, right? So, I mean, it, Japan's a great team. They always find a way to to, to attack. Um, there's no way I could lose focus. You know, it's not like it was an easy game for us. They still scored on us. They were still attacking towards the end of the game. We just were phenomenal on the attacking side. We were absolutely phenomenal, but we didn't have a great game defensively, to be quite honest. Um, it's not, it, it was never hard for me to stay focused. And I, I actually think um, when somebody asked me that, my grandma used to ask me that all the time after college games, like, what were you doing out there just twiddling your thumbs? But I actually find it completely disrespectful to the position when someone says, how do you stay focused? That's my job. Um, and, it, and it's not hard to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Um, yeah, and it obviously worked out well. I mean, you guys had you know incredible career and it yeah, worked out well again, that World Cup world cup final Um, that was
1: a fun game i'll tell you that much and to be able to celebrate usually as a goalkeeper i don't celebrate goals because i know as soon as you celebrate a goal they're going to come down on the attack so i usually just kind of try to stay pretty level and don't let myself get worked up um and even before games i'm not like the raw raw type i'm very focused um you know you'd have players like abby wambach (laughs) she'd be like (laughs) you know just constantly rah, 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 and it, to the point where it cracked us up. It was good for team morale, like I loved it. But I was more, I just had to keep myself level. You can't get too excited as a goalkeeper. Um, but in that final game, when Carly hit that shot from half field, Carly and I have been through so much together. Um, she's one of the greatest teammates I've ever played with. Selfless, incredibly selfish, great leader and a close friend of mine. And so when she scored that halftime goal, it was the first time I think in my career where a player ran back to me, an attacking player, not a defender, and hugged me, and we just embraced, and it was a moment of joy on the field. The only other time I really celebrated, I think, was was when uh, Abby scored that tying goal against Brazil back in 2011 to put us into the final, or yeah. I think it put us into the semifinal. It's the only other time I I really celebrated on the field as a goalkeeper.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that probably, you know, helped the relationship of the team as well, right? I mean, obviously you're, you were, you were very close with, you know, teammates, you know, like, like Harley. Um, Are you still tight with teammates, um, you know, currently on the team today? I know Harley uh, is planning on retiring uh, within the coming months, but are you still tight with those uh, relationships on the team and, and uh, like Harley or, or uh, Megan or,
1: I have a lot of respect for a lot of my former teammates, um, especially someone like Tobin Heath, who is just a very intelligent soccer player, a very good human being, um, very great teammate, hard worker. So I have a lot of respect for a number of different players. Maybe once in a while I'll send a text. um, Maybe once in a while you know we'll we'll reach out. Um, Carly, I talk to you know she's a close friend of mine. But I think what people don't realize, and I've had a lot of former teammates tell me or think you know, that they were gonna be best friends with their former US teammates for life, you know? And at the end of the day, everybody's life moves on. Um, You know, those are memories from the past that you'll always keep near and dear to heart. And it's good when you see one another, but yeah, we're all adults, you know? Many of us have kids and families now and and we've gone our separate ways. And I think that's just the reality of professional sports. um, I'm very close to my college teammates, but for some reason when it becomes professional, um, it, it is very much professional, and it, it, it's not girls next door. It's not everybody being best friends. We're there to do a job, and we're there to win, and we're there to represent our country. And those memories will last forever, but the relationships don't.
0: Yeah, no, no, I just yeah, like I mean, it's it's a business, right? I mean, it's tough. You know, it's a it's a long road. Um, I I, I do meant to ask, uh, you know, in twenty nineteen uh, when you took on like the broadcasting role with BBC. Uh, what was that? Did your perspective of the game change as soon as you took on that broadcasting role? Or what was it like taking on a different lens? And uh, yeah, did, did your perspective of the sport change at all?
1: Or? I really enjoyed being on the ground in France. Um, I think it was the best way for me to enjoy the World Cup was to actually see it with my own eyes, be there, enjoy the atmosphere. France put on a fabulous show. Um, the stadiums were full. And working for BBC was incredible because it's a different way to see the game. Um, it's less commercialized than here in the United States, you know, watching here in the United States, you see all of the commercials, you know, they make certain athletes look like heroes. Um, but in Europe, it was truly about the beauty of the game. And that, that was awesome for me to just be able to feel the simplicity, yet the beauty of the game without all of the political and commercialization. So that that was really, really fun. It was a, a little bit more tough to watch this last Olympics for a number of reasons. Obviously the USA team didn't perform well um, and, you know, watching it with all the commercials and, you know, it, it's more raw, raw and less about soccer. So it was difficult. This yeah. year. Yeah, no. Um... So, and uh,
0: when, when you took on that broadcasting role, I mean, that must have been exciting for you, right? Um, you know, did you, were you, uh, were, were you able to, you know, I, I know you said it's tough to stay in touch with teammates, especially in, you know, in the World Cup at in 2019, but did you, did you have any encounter with them during your trip down there? Or?
1: Yeah, yeah, I saw them down on the field. Um, I saw a number, a number of people, you know, I had all the, the on-field passes Um so, yeah, yeah, it, it was emotional when I saw Carly down on the field. Um, uh, yeah, it was emotional a number of times when I saw some players, but it was good. It was all smiles. It was, all, it was good. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but in terms of the broadcasting, um, I don't know if you know this, but I, I was broadcasting for La Liga for BN Sports, mm-hmm. and one of the few women broadcasters um, for the men's what I think is the best league. I'm sure a lot of people think the EPL is, but I had a lot of fun broadcasting, the stars and, and the games in La Liga. And I learned a lot about the game. Um, unfortunately, BN lost the rights to La Liga, so I won't be doing it next year. But um, to actually commentate on the men's game as one of the first female commentators, that, that was really, really cool. And I got the opportunity because of, of the BBC opportunity, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, congratulations. And you know making that making that transition, um, and then get landing the broadcasting role after you know playing career because that can be challenging, right? I mean, as athletes, right? There's a whole separate process that goes with it. So, uh, yeah, props to you, um, on that. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned commentating a little bit on you know men's national team or or just men's soccer in general, um, especially in 2019. I felt like you know the team was very vocal about. Um, the pay gap, and and I know you're you're pretty vocal about that as well, um, and how the women's national team gets compensated less than, you know, men's national team, uh, despite, like, the steady success you guys have had throughout these years. Um, how did that movement start amongst the team, and do you remember those initial discussions that you have with teammates in order to give you guys the courage to, to make that initiative? Or?
1: I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, I haven't had another passion outside of soccer and playing for my country, Um, than I do now, which is the Fight for Equal Pay. The Fight for Equal Pay started in 2014 before our 2015 World Cup. Um, We were able to bring in a new executive director. His name was Rich Nichols. He came um, from the NFLPA, the best players association in the world. I brought him in um, through the contact of my husband who used to play in the NFL. Rich Nichols came in um, and he was a hard ass in negotiating against the Federation. And he was the one who educated us about our rights um so we had some tough conversations as a team we knew it would take sacrifice and we all promised that we would do what it took to fight for equal pay it didn't happen in their new when i got fired in 2016 um they negotiated a new contract that was less than equal um and you have to understand the pressure that they were under you know the the federation the united states soccer federation was very good at dividing and conquering Um, It's the age old tactic and that's exactly what they did for the current team to sign a CBA that was less than equal. Um, The Equal Pay Act in Title VII has been around for over 50 years, since 1952, passed by John F. Kennedy. The problem is, is it's not implemented. So we actually shouldn't have to fight for for our constitutional rights, but unfortunately this is where we stand. I actually became the first athlete to ever file a lawsuit against my employer for the Equal Pay Act and Title VII. And this was about nine months before the class action suit of the current players. Um, the class action suit by the current team got dismissed. I I uh, have the only open remaining case for the Equal Pay Act and Title VII. Their case will probably make it to the appellate court, but it will probably take about three years.
0: Gotcha. gotcha. So, you know, what was, uh, you know, with your teammates, like, what was that conversation like, like, what, you know, did you guys talk about the risk and, and the risk reward? And um, did you guys ever have those discussions, you know, off the field in terms of, of course. Like, what was, what the role
1: yeah, like? yeah, we, uh, we were at a hotel and we all were gathered up in one of the meeting rooms and we all, it, it was a very serious meeting. We looked around, um, making eye contact with one another, asking one another, if we actually know the sacrifices this means. Uh, The United States Soccer Federation, they might cancel our games. We might lose health insurance. Uh, People have kids, you know, their kids won't have health insurance anymore. So it it was a very serious conversation. Everybody committed to the fight. Um, That's why it was really hard to see when you fast forward months later, the, you know, I got fired um, for me being the vocal leader of the equal pay fight, um, which the public doesn't necessarily know. So I get fired and shortly thereafter, they fired the new executive director because the Federation told certain players that he wasn't agreeable, which I don't know why you'd want an agreeable attorney when you're fighting for something in our constitutional rights. Um, So at the end of the day, the Federation was able to pick us off, even though we sat in that room and we looked at one another and we promised that we would do anything it took. And at the end of the day, they signed a less than equal contract and um, that is one of the reasons why I went ahead and filed the federal lawsuit um, on my own. You know, a, a year prior to them filing the class action, I asked them to join. They were too scared to. They were too scared to because there were threats by the federation that they wouldn't schedule games. There were threats that we'd lose our health insurance, and they actually stated that there's no way that we'd ever that it's what, what was the word? The word was um uh, uh, uh what was it? In our negotiations, they said that we would not even discuss equal pay with the men. Um, non-starter is the word they use. It's a non-starter. We're not even gonna have that discussion is what they said. So once the Federation divided and conquered and played their games with us, you know, that's 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 why the, the team fell into the hands of signing that, that current contracts. And that's why eventually um, they had to, to, to do the class action suit. I wasn't going to join their class action suit because they signed that less than equal CBA. So it would affect me, their decision to do that would affect this very historical equal pay act um, lawsuit that that I started in federal court. And we have to win this case at some point. And I'm not sure the class action will win um, when it goes to the appellate court. The appellate court is very conservative. And there's been some holes in in a few of the arguments by Jeff Kessler and the attorneys. Um, But all we can do, me and my attorneys, is learn from their mistakes because their case got dismissed. It didn't even get heard in front of the judge. It got dismissed on summary judgment. So that tells you that there's some holes in the case. Perhaps, you know, the judge might have been too conservative, but at the end of the day, it's about law. And so you can't have any missteps. And so we are a just making sure that we are crossing our t's and dotting our i's because at the end of the day if we don't change this if there's not a precedence in the court system then the future generations aren't going to have equal pay if there's a settlement with the class action suit which my guess is there's going to be a settlement it doesn't change anything you know we're trying to actually make change in the court system to set a precedence for future generations
0: no that's that's great and you know obviously i mean as a- leader like you must feel great about yourself like you know making those strides and you know even though it's you know not official official yet um you know on the legal side um the effort you guys have made is, is evident um you know just kind of, kind of going off of that you know are you proud of the awareness that has been built to the situation uh over the years you know even though just on the legal side nothing is official yet but you have brought awareness and and um, you know, within the previous you know eight years or so, you know the team has been very vocal um, and expressive about it. Um, is that something you're proud of, and um, you know, with the team? Or?
1: Yeah, I mean we have to educate people. We had to educate ourselves about the law and the history of the law and our rights as as women and and you know women athletes. Um, but it's not enough. Uh, we can't merely make gestures. We can't merely just wear shirts that say equal pay. There has to be sacrifices made. Um, you have to sit down and do the work and read the legal documents. Um, it, it's really not easy. You can't say always the political right thing. Um, you, can't, you can't side with U.S. soccer in this fight. Um, so I think it's tough for, for athletes. You know, a lot of them are making merely gestures um, because they don't know what else to do. And I don't blame them. You know, there's a lot of young athletes on the team. But when you look back at the changes made throughout our society, whether it's on the sports field or within politics, women's right to vote, power is never given. You have to take it. You actually have to fight to take it. So you have to make risks. You look, it it wasn't peaceful in the the fight for the women's right to vote. It wasn't, let's ask the Federation nicely for equal pay. You had to fight for it. And I wanna see more athletes actually make sacrifices and fight for it. That's what I want to see. But yes, you know, awareness is, is a starter. It's the first step, right? But we need to move beyond that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, definitely it brought awareness to the situation. And uh, in terms of, you know, I know a lot of celebrities probably were, were you know, praising the team and supporting you throughout this process. Um, did you have any, uh, you know, celebrity encounters, you know, reach out to you saying, you know, how can I support in terms of Um, you know, making an effort in this movement as well. Um,
1: Of course, yeah. I mean, Kobe Bryant was a huge supporter of ours. Uh, Rest in peace, Kobe. It was, you know, for a number of reasons, just really hard to see what happened to him and his family. Um, He was a huge supporter, obviously, with his daughters. Um, You know, he was trying to to help pave the way for us. Um, Biden, uh, I guess it was Vice President Biden at the time, was on the field in our 2015 World Cup final. Um, you know, we, we, had a, we had a ton of support from celebrities, from politicians, from the United States Senate, um, from uh, sponsorships, uh, just a ton of support. And I think everybody, because of that celebrity support and political support, I think everybody thought that we're actually further along in our fight for equal pay than we really are. Um, we're working hard right now. I work with Sports Fans Coalition, and we're working hard to pass a new bill in the Senate. Um, that would give all Olympic athletes equal, equal everything, not just equal pay, but equal um, camps and uh, budgets, you know, whether that's USA Gymnastics, USA Basketball, you, you know, all of the national governing bodies under the USOPC would have equal funding. Um, So we're working really hard to get that passed in the Senate right now and it's bipartisan. So that's the amazing thing is you see all of the support. It has to be bipartisan because it's, you know, this this act was passed, this law was passed back in, I think I said 53, it was 1963 by John F. Kennedy. So it should be bipartisan, but um, I've pretty much exhausted all my remedies to fight for equal pay. and we're, you know, we need intervention. I think that's where we're at right now. We actually need intervention, not just by celebrities, but by the president of the United States, by senators. That's the only way we're gonna get this act. I mean, I, I can keep pushing forward with my lawsuit and I, of course I will, but it'd be nice to see more than just that support. We actually need movement and we need more than gestures. We need policy.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um you know, just kind of going off of that, what do you think is your greatest contribution to the sport of soccer? Um, you know, whether it's that fight for equal pay or, or really those accomplishments, you know, really exceeding the, the expectations, uh, you know, on the field, w- which of those are, are you most proud of, I guess?
1: Yeah, that, that's really tough. I, th- I think um, the number one uh, thing that we should remember as athletes is we are there. To win, and we are there to compete. That's why we got into sports. That's why we play at the highest level. That's why we represent our country at the Olympics and World Cups. It's to win, and it's to compete, and it's to be the best. That is a history of soccer in the United States, and it's a history of the women's team. And it's what I always believe in it's that competitive nature in me. Why play the game at the highest level? It's my job. Why do it if I don't have the passion? So for me, one of my uh, greatest achievements is actually changing, um, the way goalkeeping was played. Um, I brought a, a, a different style to the position. I was able to play with the ball at my feet. I was able to distribute, I was in shape. I could run with the best of them. Um, I was quick, I was agile. I was good in the air and I changed the dynamics of goalkeeping on the women's game. And I'm very, very, very proud of that. Um, Now, the fight for equal pay and starting that fight and continuing having the first ever lawsuit against their employer and the only pending lawsuit, that is going to change, not right now, but 10 years from now, that's gonna change the, the, the direction of the game for tons of women. So ask me that again in 10 years. And I hope I still have the same answer because for me, I always wanted to be an athlete first, not a politician. And not a celebrity. It was always about winning. And that was really, really important to me. And it's what made me great. And honestly, it's what gave me confidence to probably speak up about other things. So I guess I got to go back to my roots.
0: Absolutely. I was just going to say that it's pretty incredible because at the beginning of the interview, you talked about, you know, it was hard almost for you to afford to play the game of soccer. And now we're talking about you changing the dynamics of the style of play for goalkeeping and, and making this movement. So uh yeah, just even just in this length of the interview, like insane how he started there and, and now you are where you're <laughs> at now. Yeah, so it's it's awesome. So um, no, yeah. really appreciate, really appreciate. Hope um, I guess to wrap it up is, you know, how, how can fans uh, get in touch with you today and you know, kind of hear you know some some motivational words from you and, and hear learn a little bit more about your experience.
1: Uh, it's been really hard during this pandemic. Um. You know, I used to do signings. I used to do certain appearances. I did a lot of public speaking. I went to universities. Um, I got to interact with young, impressionable minds, but also older fans alike. and and my fans always meant the world to me because they're uh, they're very loyal fans. I think because I've been so polarized, um, you either love me or hate me, and so my fans really love me. So I miss I miss that interaction. And this opportunity, came about um, through this new platform called mentor cam and mentor cam you can find it um, you can find the app and you can actually you can actually send videos and get in touch with your mentor or um, somebody you just want to ask a question to or a celebrity or really anybody who you're intrigued by and it's really really cool and I can't believe somebody hadn't come up with this idea before um, it's the first time where I actually feel like I'm making a difference in people's lives again. Um, It feels like I'm taught, you know, I'm FaceTiming them basically. So it feels like I get to know them. I'm having this this face-to-face interaction. I'm helping young goalkeepers work on their footwork through the camera. Um, I'm helping people through the pandemic remain hopeful because jobs sometimes are really hard to find. Um, I'm actually giving emotional output again, which sometimes can be exhausting to emotionally, you know, put yourself out there, but it means the world to me because my fans are great and I know that they're impressionable and I know they want to do things with their lives. And so to be able to make that difference, I'm very, very proud. So um, if anyone hasn't heard about it, just check out MentorCam because it's an amazing app.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we also got a uh, discount code. So um, everyone go use WS25 for a 25% discount. They get a go ask, uh, go ask Hope anything and and hear any mo- motivational support. So, um, yeah, really appreciate it, Hope. Uh, what you've done for the game and for the sport is, you know, incredible. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And I know it's been a long time coming. So, uh, I know your time is valuable. So, really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Kevin, you're awesome. I really appreciate you having me on. It's great chatting here. Hi, All
0: right. Appreciate it, Hope. Let me know if sure. I can be you support.
1: Okay, cool. Take care, everybody.
0: All right.